And uh, so we are, we are starting a brand new series called The End, and we're going to finish out the year with a series on Revelation. So uh, we're going to be going chapter by chapter uh, through this, and it's going to be very relevant, very interesting, and I hope that you guys truly like it and that you are inspired because the book of Revelation is an inspiring book. It's very, 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 very important because it is. it was written as an encouragement to Christians. It was the, the, the fire and brimstone that everybody thinks about in Revelation. Uh, everybody's kind of scared of it, and it's the end of times and everything. Well, the people that read this in the first century were highly encouraged by it, and we'll, uh, we'll be talking about that in just a second. But remember that everything that we do from this point to the end of the year in the book of Revelation is an encouragement. It is a blessing. And we have to understand that. So um, without further ado, uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're jumping into uh, Book of Revelation. Part one is to the churches. And the main thing today is simply a call to stand firm. A call to stand firm. That's what this is. Revelation 1, 1 through 3 says this. Revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one that reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You are blessed if you understand what goes on in Revelation, the Bible says. The book of Revelation was given to the Apostle John. He was the last remaining uh, disciple. Everyone else had been killed in, in, in not so nice ways. And he was in prison on the island of Patmos. Patmos was the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. It was this island, uh, this rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea, uh, right, off of, right off of Greece. And, uh, and, and the cells were actually under the water line. So when the tide would come in, the cells would fill with water uh, every, every 12 hours. And it was, it was just awful. He was in prison there for his faith. And while he was on this rock, Jesus Christ, uh, um, form, uh, he sent his angel to reveal to him the end times. And he wrote these things down. Now, the church was undergoing massive persecution at this time. Once a year, this is one of the things they had to do, that all Roman citizens had to do. Once a year, they had to go before the magistrate and proclaim that Caesar was God. It was a mandate. Had to do it. And, uh, and no, obviously no Christian could do that. And so they were seen as enemies of the state. They were hunted down and persecuted. And their faith was starting to waver a little bit. They were wondering, is Jesus really the Son of God? Is this really worth uh, you know, staying true to Jesus with all this persecution going on? All right, so the revelation was written as an encouragement. It was good news. It was uh, it, the only people who don't see it as good news are the people that are so invested in this culture that the return of Jesus would be seen as a negative thing. All right, but never, never forget the revelation is good news. It is an encouragement to all Christians, telling us to persevere, don't quit because God wins. That's what Revelation says. So Revelation starts out, interestingly enough, with seven letters to seven churches. Um, they all exist in what's, called, what's known as modern-day Turkey. And these letters are written on, on several levels. 
the first level, they were existing churches that were representative of, uh, of the seven types of churches that, that, that there were. Um, the church at Ephesus was legalistic. The church at Smyrna was persecuted. The church at Pergamum was liberal. The per- church at Thyatira was pagan. The church at Sardis was a dead church. Uh, the church at Philadelphia was alive. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia over there. Uh, and the church at Laodicea was compromised and apathetic. And, and I, I believe that, that though it was representative not just of... Of, of the church that is then, but that is representative of all churches today. I think that all churches fit somewhere in one of those seven categories. I really do that. The second level was that these letters represented the seven types of Christians that exist today, um, in the world today. Uh, legalistic, compromised, uh, uh, dead, etc. Um, but the third level was that these letters represented seven periods of church history. And that's where we're going to land today. And we're going to go through these and see what Jesus has to say to these seven churches. Interestingly enough, most people like to skip over these three chapters because they want to know how it ends. Well, that's not how Jesus wants. Jesus always says, get your own house in order first. So he starts Revelation by talking to his churches and to his believers. Okay? So... Seven churches. The first church at Ephesus represents a period of church history about 30 A.D. to 95 A.D. And the major problem was getting doctrine together, figuring out what Christianity was. But they went too far and they forgot Jesus. It was marked by legalism. Isn't that interesting? That uh, within 60 years of the death of Jesus, the church had already forgotten Jesus. Amazing. They were more concerned with right and wrong, good and evil, than they were about the Son of God. So the positives we found are hard work, perseverance, no tolerance for evil. But the negatives, they've forsaken their first love. And so when Jesus exits the church, there's nothing but cold, dead legalism. We, I think we've all been in churches like that. Hopefully that is not this church. Uh, Jesus called this church to repent and turn to his first love. So that, that is what God calls the legalistic church to do. The second, uh, the church of Smyrna existed from about, the, this period was about 95 A.D. to about 312 A.D. It was marked by persecution. That was the, that was the big thing. The, the positives that Jesus writes to this church are that they're truly rich and they're faithful unto death. But the negatives is that they're undergoing major persecution. They were in danger of leaving the faith. Jesus was saying, whoa, time out, time out, time out. It's not the time to exit. It's not going to last forever. I'm calling you to stand firm. Um, be faithful to the point of death, he said, and they'll give them a victor's crown. I think that's a good message for the church in America today. Um, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine this past week, a pastor of a church in Lexington, and we were just talking about how our churches were doing, and, and, and he said uh, his church was at about 60% of its pre-COVID attendance. 60%. And he said that's, that's about the norm across the, uh, across the nation. And we've seen a great falling away, a real pruning of the church this past year. And, and, and all the while, Jesus is telling us to stand firm, to stay faithful, to not exit. Good message for the church today. Uh, the third uh, period of church history uh, is from about 312 to 590. This is the church at Pergamum. And this was developed after Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And it became cool. And, the, and, and it became accepted. And the church and the state jumped in bed together. And uh, the, the state basically corrupted the church. It was marked by liberalism. Um, they, they didn't care about doctrine. They were opposite of Ephesus. They were an anything goes kind of church. All right? The positives were that they remained true to Jesus, but the negatives that they were following incorrect teaching. They were following things that weren't in the Bible, and they were adopting them, and they were getting mad at people that didn't follow them as well. 
Right? It was the first time that the church had mainstream acceptance. The church had been a persecuted little <clears throat> remnant going on, and now it was cool. Now it was accepted. Now the culture now it started to gain assets. It started to get property, started to get buildings, started to get uh, uh, things like this. And now, in this period, the church has something to lose. See, before this, the church had nothing to lose. They could go preach about Christ and, and everything taken away from them, and it would, they'd be out five bucks. But now... It became accepted, and now church had standing and status, and preaching Christ became dangerous because they had something to lose now. And it always leads to compromise. And uh, it set the stage for the next period of church history, the one that haunts the church to this day, which is the A.D. 590 to 1517, the church at Thyatira. This is known as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. Um, it was marked by paganism. Uh, positives that were that, that they had love and faith, service and perseverance, and doing more than they'd previously done. But uh, uh, the negatives were they allowed immoral leaders to, to teach and abuse the people, and they were unwilling to repent. And uh, everybody knows about the excesses of this church, uh, this period in church history. The, the, the atheists love to quote this. This 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 is when the uh, by the end of this period of church history, people were actually selling uh, indulgences. The, the Johann Tetzel, as soon as the coin and coffer rings, the lost soul from Purgatory Springs. By the time this, the, these leaders were done, you could actually buy your way out of hell. That's, how, that's, that's where the church was. It was, it, was, it, was, it was terrible, terrible leadership. And then that moves us on to chapter 3, the next period of church history. The Church of Sardis from 1517 A.D. to 1750 A.D. It was a post-Reformation church. Protestant uh, churches, but it's still wedded to the state. It was marked by a lack of life. It was a dead church. It had the appearance of being alive, but it was dead. And positives were that it had some people who walked with God, but the negatives, they're spiritually dead. They left work unfinished. See, this is, this is something that we need to get a hold of because there's a lot of this going on in today's Christianity. All right? Had the, had the, um, the appearance of being alive. They engaged in lots of activity. Did a lot of things that people noticed and, and applauded them for. Um, they, they, they served. They served the poor. They, they did soup kitchens and they fed people, which is all good. Had the appearance of being alive. But here's the thing. They were not making disciples. They were not winning people to Christ. And see, all of those things that, that the church was doing could be done by unbelievers. All right? The only thing the church can do that unbelievers can't do is win people to Christ. And that was the one thing they weren't doing. Right? Basically, God was saying, these things are wonderful, and I'm glad you're doing them. But I didn't send my son to die on a cross so you could give people a meal. I mean, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that. You're saving them for a day. But I'm interested in saving them for eternity. All right? So return to your first priority. All right? So that, that was what was going on in that era. Spiritual, uh, it appears to be alive, but it was actually dead. The next period of church history is 1750 to about 1925. And this is the church at Philadelphia. And from uh, missionary activity uh, that started in 1750 to the German school of higher criticism. And it was marked by aliveness. This was the booming uh, period of church history. This is the only, only, th uh, only letter that Jesus writes to these churches that has nothing negative to say. All right? Uh, they, they said that the, they placed before an open door, the next stands in their way. They kept God's word and not denied him. They patiently endured for Christ. Uh, uh, they will never be cast out of the city of God. May, this, this period was marked by great awakenings. Um, uh, colleges and universities were started to advance knowledge. It's for Harvard University and Princeton, and, and all these were started during this time uh, to train pastors. I don't know if you knew that or not. 
Most, edu- most uh, colleges back then were started to train pastors to adequately uh, 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 preach the word of God. Hospitals were set up to care for the sick. Massive missionary work and church planting all over the world. Right? So, like I said, that set the stage for the current period of church history. The sorriest state, even sorrier than the Middle Ages, according to Scripture, which is the church at Laodicea. That's 1925 to the present. All right? Uh, David Reagan said that, this, that the church of Laodicea was a worldly, apostate, apathetic church that won't even let Jesus in the front door. That was the, that's the period of church history we're living in now. The positives that they're loved by God. The negatives is that the lukewarm, apathetic, and about see spit out of God's mouth. Right? This will be the church at the time of Jesus' return. That's the, that's the period of history we find ourselves in right now. Okay? Interestingly enough, most people like to skip over these first three chapters. They don't want to hear about this. They want to hear about how things end. But Jesus always starts with the challenge to the church to get their own houses in order. And that's what we're going to do today. All right, the letters to the church are basically God saying, self-reflection time, Christians. Self-reflection time, churches. Where are you? How are you doing? All right? Before we go any further, catalyst, you got to start with ourselves. How are we doing? Which of those churches are we? Seven churches. Are we the church at Ephesus? Are we the church at Smyrna? Are we liberal, legalistic, persecuted, pagan, dead church, live or we compromise and apathetic? Which are we? We have to ask ourselves that first before we go any further. And then which of the seven are you personally? Because unless you've been incredibly intentional about your commitment to your faith, about your walk with Christ, unless you have fully committed yourself and, and risen above the default apathy that exists in the church today, then you are, you are the church at Laodicea, Catalyst, and I am too. You understand that's the default. That's the norm. Barring a major work of grace in your life, the church of Laodicea is who you are and who I am. All right? That kills me. It bothers me. It upsets me. See, Jesus didn't write these letters to these churches to bash or to sermonize. He loves his people. He loves you. And he loves his church, and he can't see, stand seeing his church and his people muddling and messing about in this compromised, apathetic, lukewarm state. So he's sending his warning. Listen, church, this is where you are. Things are coming in the next chapters. I'm about to reveal stuff that you're not ready for, church, and I'm telling you, you're asleep at the wheel. The, the, the car is hurtling towards the bridge, which is out ahead, and you're asleep, and the cruise control is at 70 miles per hour, and I'm yelling at you, church. I'm yelling for you to wake up, not because I hate you, because I'm angry at you, because I love you, and I don't want to see you go over the cliff. That is what, this, that is what the first three chapters of Revelation is. All right? You've been lulled to sleep, and I'm not, I'm not yelling at you. I'm trying to save you, is what Jesus is saying. Unfortunately, that message is lost to so many people today, even people in here, as wonderful as you are. See, the Apostle Paul wrote about the state of the church in the end times, at the time of Jesus' return. In 2 Timothy 4.3, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's the Laodicean church. 
And in his book, Crazy Love, Pastor Francis Chan did a profile of what it means to be lukewarm. Profile of lukewarm. I, I, I don't have, didn't have room to put it all up here, but here are five of the things that he said. This is a self-reflection time. This is something we have to look at because this is what I'm about to say. This is the default. This is the norm. Unless you have been rescued out of it, this is you and this is me. All right? For number one, lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It's what's expected of them. They believe what they believe good Christians do, so they go. And there's nothing wrong with that. We emphasize coming to church. We believe in that. That's where Christians should be on Sunday morning. I don't, I don't understand why Christians aren't in church on Sunday morning. All right? The second one, lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church, as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra and it's easy and safe to give, they do so. And that's, we all know that's true. We all know that's true. Number three, lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. This is where it gets real, you guys. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't really sorry for it. They're just merely sorry because God's going to punish them. Lukewarm people don't really believe this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Wow. Number four, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ yet they don't act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. And the fifth one, lukewarm people don't live by faith. These lives structure so they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have the savings account. Don't need God to help them. They've got their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out what life God would have them live. They've life figured out and mapped out. Don't depend on God on a daily basis. They have life, uh, I'm sorry, their refrigerators are full of food, and for the most part, they're in good health. Truth is, if their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. You may have seen this before, and I hope you have, because the problem you guys, isn't lukewarmness. The problem of this period of church history is not lukewarm. That's not the problem. You all want to know what the problem is? This is the problem. The problem is that the goal of the Laodicean church and Laodicean Christians, that the goal is lukewarmness. It's the goal. It's how you know you've arrived. It's how you know you're a good Christian. It's how you know you've got life figured out if you're lukewarm. Guys, check this out. I've, basically, it, it says... I've got enough Jesus. I don't have enough house. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough fill in the blank. But I've got enough Jesus. And that's the goal. That's how you know you've arrived. As long as I'm not as bad as the guy over there, we say to ourselves. I'm good. I mean, I'm not on fire. As a matter of fact, someone who's on fire for Christ kind of bothers me a little bit. Makes me nervous. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of blend in. Kind of blend in. That's the problem. And I'm not saying that everyone's lukewarm. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that's how most of us in here would describe yourselves. And that's the problem. I mean, is there anyone in here who would say, yes, I am on fire for God this morning. I, I am just totally surrendered. I am on fire for God right now. Is anybody who would say that? Anybody say, well, I'm just, I'm off the, I, I'm, I'm, falling off the, the face of the earth. I am walking away from my faith. No, probably not. You wouldn't be here if you were. So we're kind of in the middle there. And that's the problem. See, that's the Laodicean church. Church whose goal is middle of the road. 
not hot, not cold, somewhat committed, but not really. Loving Jesus as long as it doesn't require me to sacrifice and resenting any challenge to comfort or materialism. So we have the challenge to overcome this default, this norm that we find ourselves in. We have to move from lukewarm to alive because I ask this question, church, before we get into this. I ask this question. Is it possible to be a lukewarm Christian? Is it? Is it possible to be a lukewarm Christian? Are the people Jesus is talking to here in chapter 3, are they Christians? And here in chapter 3, verse 17, he says they're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Are, are, are those the words Jesus uses to describe his followers? Blind? I once was blind, but now I'm blind? I mean, he even says their actions are so detestable, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Are those words you describe Christians? I don't think so. See, this is a wake-up call to his church. Laodicea church, you're not Christians. I really believe that's what Jesus is saying. So moving from lukewarm to alive isn't like going from a base model to a, a car with all the options. You know, it's not like going from the JV team to the varsity team. He's kind of tweaking a few things and making it better. No, you're going from lost to saved. If you go from lukewarm to alive, you move from lost to saved. And that's what we have to get straight today, church. So from lukewarm to alive, this is what we do. This is how we overcome this time in history. This is how we do it, you guys. Check this out. First thing is this. you got to move from lukewarm leadership to living leadership. It always starts at the top. We always have to get our own house in order before, uh, before yelling at everyone else. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Before I can preach a message like this, you guys, I've got to preach to myself. Like it or not, I'm the pastor here. And everything starts with me, including God's judgment. And then I have to preach to the staff, and the elders, and the leaders, and then those who lead families. Everyone leads something, even if it's just your own life. But I have to start with myself. I'm very aware of that. A quote by John Piper always sits in the back of my mind. It says this, the Christian leader must ruthlessly examine his life to see whether he's the least bit enslaved by television, alcohol, coffee, golf, video games, fishing, laziness, playboy, pornography, good food. Spiritual leaders ruthlessly track down bad habits and break them by the power of the Spirit. Spiritual leaders long to be free from everything that hinders their fullest delight in God and service to others. What a powerful statement. And that's what I desire to be so badly. We long to be free of anything that destroys our joy in the Lord. We long, we thirst to be free of temptation and sin and strongholds that Satan has within us. I, I was talking to a young man who's going into ministry. He was one of my former youth, uh, he, was a, he was a teenager when I was in youth ministry. He's going into the ministry now, and I'm kind of mentoring him a little bit. And we discussed the topic of character, and we decided that character was two things. It's what, who you are when no one's looking, and how you treat people that can't do anything for you. That's what your character is. And that's what leaders must have, Character. We must be the same people. I must be the same person I am on stage here when I'm with my family, when I'm alone in my room, when I'm in the car. I have to be the same person because character is who you are when no one's looking and how you treat people that can't do a thing for you. Compromised worldly churches are led by compromised worldly pastors. And so, guys, I am the first one on the judgment block. I am. I know that full well. 
on the day that we as a church stand before God, and it may be sooner than we think, he won't ask any of you about Catalyst Christian Church. He'll ask me. I'm responsible for everything that's taught here, everything that's preached, emphasized, done, good or bad here. And I know that really well. I know that, that, that the first person that needs preaching is me. Second quote, how shall I study? How shall I teach? How shall I write? How shall I live? What will be the vigilance regarding television and the privacy of my room? Will I rise early enough to pray concerning the magnitude of truth that is at stake in the world so as to help people know God better than they know anything and delight in God more than they delight anything? That is the burden placed on us pastors. Right? It's what we will be held accountable for. The leadership after that, the leadership in this church, and after that, leadership of families represented here. As we said, Pat, lukewarm churches led by lukewarm pastors, lukewarm youth ministries led by youth, lukewarm youth ministers, lukewarm children's ministries are led by the lukewarm children's ministers, lukewarm community groups are led by lukewarm community group leaders, lukewarm families are led by, led by lukewarm moms and dads. It's very difficult to be an alive leader. Some people in the church really like when you're an alive leader. Some people don't like it at all. In this Laodicean age, church members don't like it when pastors hold them accountable. They don't. You ever wonder why pastors don't hold people accountable more often? You ever wonder why? Well, here's what it's like. See, pastors, we pastors love our people. We love you guys. We wouldn't be pastors if we weren't. We wouldn't keep showing up here on Sunday morning if we didn't love you. So we do life with people in our churches. We're in a community group. We see them on Sunday mornings. Our kids go to school together, play soccer together. We're, we're in fellowship. We laugh together and everything. Then we see something unbiblical, some, some type of sin, some type of wrong. And we say something. And then the people disappear. Don't see them on Sunday. Don't see them the next Sunday. We send them texts, no response. Or a, we're doing okay response. We call, go straight to voicemail. And what we realize as pastors is that we've lost friends. It's not just someone in our church that we've lost. We've lost someone we dearly love. And you do that enough times, people, you stop. Because losing friends hurts. It hurts too badly. It's like a junior high breakup. You promise to still be friends, but you're not. So we turn a blind eye. That's what pastors do. We turn a blind eye to sin. And say nothing as the people in our church persist in, in it. In fact, it gets to the point, the only reason people keep coming to church is if they're allowed to go on sinning. And that's the state of so many American churches today. It's the church at Laodicea. Basically, unless I'm allowed to continue sinning, I'm going to go find another church that allows me to. Who are you to say anything to me? And so we pastors are faced with a dilemma. Do we call out sin and have them leave? Or do we not say anything? And just hope that through our relationship, through teaching, they come around. See, Ed Stetzer wrote, wrote about this in his, in his book, Transformational Church. A few churches use any system of accountability today. Many North American Christians perceive church-wide accountability as intrusive and overbearing. But we can only expect what we inspect. If leaders don't take a close look into the lives of the church and the lives of believers, they should not be surprised when there's nothing worth reporting. It's very, very difficult being a pastor in a Laodicean church age because so many people aren't interested in following with Jesus with passion and they resent anyone telling them to. That's just the way it is. So we as a church have to overcome the spirit of this age. All right? And then after Jesus calls us from lukewarm leadership to a live leadership, 
Jesus calls from lukewarm materialism to living sacrificially. If you guys look at number two, from lukewarm materialism to living sacrificially, Revelation 3, 17, Jesus says this to the church of Laodicea. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Have you ever had a moment, you guys, when you have been doing something for a long time and then all of a sudden you just realize it's wrong or you've been doing it wrong or, or, and you, you think, man, what was I thinking? Have y'all ever had that, that mis- okay, one of my, how many of y'all like Farside? How many of you 80s, uh, like the Farside cartoons? Okay, one of my favorite Farside cartoons uh, is where um, there, there are three sharks in the water and, the, and they're, they're at a beach and the people are running out of the water. And one of the churches said, well, how did they know? Well, our dorsal fins are sticking out. I wonder how many times that screwed things up. Well, just about every single time, isn't it? Well, I started thinking, 150 years ago, you all, there were Christians that owned other human beings. You know that, right? There were Christians that owned other human beings in this country. And they, they, they saw no problem with it. They, they, uh, they went to church on Sunday, they came back and rode their horses past the human beings that they owned in the fields. And apparently it didn't bother them very much. And we, in 2021, look back at that and say, what were you all thinking? Well, let's fast forward 150 years if the Lord doesn't return before then. What are Christians going to say about us? What are they going to look at? See, see this, um, this past Sunday, we had a huge victory. Those of you all that were here uh, and that have been part of this church um, you know that we have a huge ministry over in India. And one of the parts of the, of the, the Indian ministry is church planning. And, and one of the pastors who went to a very remote, dangerous area had his house burned by a mob. He was doing such a good job of converting uh, Hindus to Christianity that they burned his house trying to get him to go. He, so he and his wife and four children were out. They lost everything they owned. And our orphanage director sent, said that, that uh, can you please pray for, uh, for Pastor Jeremiah? Um, we need $2,500 to rebuild everything. Well, people like you all started emailing, hey, what can we do? And so I said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll do dollar days and everything will go to Pastor Jeremiah. Need was $2,500. As of today, more than $5,500 has come in. $5,500. The need was $2,500. You all more than doubled it, okay? You all didn't just give $2,500. You all gave $5,500. $3,000 past what was needed, okay? It's a huge miracle. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing what, 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 what we did last Sunday. But here's the question, and there's always a question. Did anyone who gave last week did any of y'all not eat that day? Anyone mortgage their house? Anyone sell a car? Did, did anyone, um, was your standard of living affected at all? I know mine wasn't. We gave to it, and I, we, we had three meals a day, and we're still, we're, we're still doing well. No, no, no real sacrifice. So, so uh, church, here's the thing. What if, if, if that is what we can do without sacrificing at all, what would it look like if we started living sacrificially? 
What would we be capable of? You guys pulled off a huge miracle without even sacrificing at all. What would it look like, church, if we were to take the words of Jesus seriously and start living sacrificially? What would we be capable of? You know, I, I have a feeling that in 150 years, Christians are going to look back at this era of time. You guys understand, we have more money and more leisure time than any people at any time in history. You guys understand that, right? We don't just have more money. We have more leisure time. The average person looks at a screen seven hours a day. That's not somebody that's busy. You understand? All right, see, you want to know why we have all the problems we have, why, why, why people are, are, are confused about this and that and the other, and how, why there's so much conflict and everything? Because we've got too much time on our hands. Okay? The problems that we have, that we see, they're all first world problems. They are. Okay, we, if, we were, if we had to work the fields 15, 16 hours a day for our subsistence, we would not be worrying about 58 genders. We wouldn't have time for it, okay? We wouldn't have, a, so we have more affluence and more time, and we're bored out of our minds as Americans. That's why we have to invent problems, okay? A lot of us have to. That's what a lot of our problems are. What if we started living sacrificially with our resources, with our money, with our time? What would that look like? I have a feeling that people 150 years from now are going to say they had how much money? They, they, they looked at screens for seven hours. They, they, they developed problems in their neck because they were over, leaning over for so long while there were the world uncared for, unreached with the gospel, filthy water, uh, uh, sex trafficking, all of that was going on and they were doing what? What were they thinking? I wonder what they're going to say about us. Just like we look back at Christians in the 1850s and 60s and say, well, you owned human beings, what were you thinking? Well, they look at us and say, you had more resources than any other people, any other society, the history of the planet, and you did what? What were you thinking? See, we need to move from lukewarm materialism to living sacrificially. The third thing that God calls us to do, Jesus calls us to do, is from lukewarm to alive, is move from lukewarm faith to living faith. Revelation 3, 8 through 10 Jesus says this, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, so they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, there's a supernatural power available for those who have faith. The Bible describes if you have faith, if you are a faithful Christian, there's a door in front of you that no one can shut. What you're incapable of doing in your own power, God will enable you to do. And I love this quote. Francis Chan says this, our greatest fear should not be of failure. Our greatest fear should be of succeeding in things that don't matter. See, the Laodicean church and the, the, the spirit of the age are fantastic at succeeding in things that don't matter. We know sports stats, and we know wonderful uh, uh, stats of our favorite players, and we know brands, and we know the cars, and we know everything like that. These things don't matter. We're fantastic. We're successful in things that don't matter. 
and we don't know the word of God. We're not mentoring people. We're not making disciples. Those are the things that matter, and we need to be excellent in those things. The lukewarm church is fantastic, successful in the things that don't matter. But here's the truth, you guys, and I'm going to invite the band to come on back up. Because Jesus has spent, basically, the Laodicean church, he's basically just been, he's been castigating them and, and, and telling them you're, you're falling short and everything like that. But check, check this out. Look how it ends after yelling at them to wake up. He ends the letter with this. In Revelation 3, 19 through 22, he goes, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with me. In other words, Listen, I'm telling you all this stuff because I love you and I'm offering my friendship, I'm offering my fellowship to you. If you wake up and you repent of this lukewarm days you're living in, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna eat with you and you with me. That's fellowship. The Son of God himself promises, but it gets even better. He writes this in verse 21, to the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Whoa, whoa, hang on. What? Did he just say that? He just spent 15 verses yelling at us, saying he's about to spit us out of his mouth, call us lukewarm, and then he says, I'm going to eat with you, and not only that, you're going to sit on the throne with me, on my heavenly throne? The, the, I mean, that, that is what is... That's what I'm offering you guys. If you overcome this lukewarmness, this apathy, this complacency, I will actually let you sit on the throne with me and rule. Is that, is that what he, that's exactly what he just said. Dang. That is what the prize is for everyone who's able to break out of this spirit of the age. That's what's offered to you, to sit on the throne with Jesus himself. Those I love, I rebuke, and I discipline. Christ is calling us to repentance and to fellowship with him. Shake off this worldliness, this compromised state that we find ourselves in. Because what is coming next, Jesus says, you're not ready for. So repent, he says. Make yourself, make, make yourself right with me. Because what is about to happen in the next 18 chapters is not good for people that, whose hearts aren't right. But for the people whose hearts are right, the people who overcome, not only are you going to be in heaven with me, you're going to be sitting on my throne with me. Just out of curiosity, how many of you all have ever sat on the throne of the King of England? Anyone? Anyone ever sat on the throne of any king? Any kings in here? No? We aren't even allowed to sit on earthly thrones. And yet, the Son of God is saying, for you, I'm going to sit you on my heavenly throne. The throne of the universe. The throne of God himself. If you're able to overcome. If you're able to to shake off this worldliness that we find ourselves living in. Amazing. And that's the promise that Jesus has for all of us. So I'm, I'm, I'm basically going to end 
by saying, church, Jesus loves us so much that he sees us asleep at the wheel, hurtling towards a, a, a ravine, and he's yelling at us to wake up. I pray that you and I do that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father.